Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Frank Ramos of Miami, Florida, a partner at the Clark Silvergate Law Firm. He's regarded as one of the best lawyers in the country. He's written 15 books for lawyers and serves as a mentor to young lawyers. But in 2013, Frank was in a deep depression that colored every one of his thoughts, every task, every project, and every relationship he had. He was delusional as he saw the glass wasn't half full, it was poisoned. Frank says that those two years were the darkest two years of his life, not only for him, but also for his wife and two boys. Since then, like myself, Frank has become devoted to helping others. We're honored that Frank has shared some of his time with us today. Frank, how are you doing today? Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate the time and the opportunity. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Well, that's quite a story to tell. It sounds as, <laughs> though, sounds as though you've excelled at a very high level in the legal field, but also went through a case of depression while doing so. And I can definitely relate. I was a high-level executive in the media and entertainment business and was going through severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and, and was never diagnosed correctly. So can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about your story and how you got here today? And take your time, please. Sure. Um, I guess we can start at the beginning. I grew up in Chicago in the 70s and 80s. I was a Generation Xer, latchkey kid. And back at that time, no one really talked about depression or mental health. You just you know, went about your business. Um, went to move to Miami in the mid-80s. Went to high school, college, and law school here. Met my wife. In undergrad, we got married between undergrad and law school, and since then we've had two boys, uh, 22 and 19. Uh, one recently graduated from Florida State uh, in music education, and our younger one is a sophomore as a jazz performance major at the University of Miami. Um, my story in terms of my depression, I guess it starts with my family. My mom, uh, who passed in 2013 due to complications of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, uh, was depressed her entire life. Um, I don't think it was ever diagnosed. Her sister was chronically depressed and suicidal, as was my mom. We had uh, two uncles on her side that ended up taking their lives due to suicide. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure we'll get into it during our conversation, but genetics is such an important factor, knowing where you come from and who is in your family tree. Um, 
you know, you think of someone like Ernest Hemingway, who had such a storied career and ended up taking his life at the end of a shotgun. And you look at his life, there's, I think, five or six family members in his immediate line who also took their lives. Um, so there's obviously a strong genetic component. Uh, not always, but th that certainly is a factor and something to always take in consideration. So that was certainly in my background. And I think um, with the stressors of being a lawyer and, you know, in your, in your case, being a business executive, that's where it starts bubbling to the surface. And at some point, you start uh, developing some bad habits in terms of just coping and worldview. And uh, you had mentioned how I saw the world. I mean, I think optimists see the world as the last half full, pessimists see it as half empty. And I think chronic depressives see it as water being poisoned. It's very delusional. We have a different vantage point perspective on our lives and the world around us. And it's really hard to break out of. And no matter what others say, or no matter what we say to ourselves for that matter, uh, it's hard to change that vantage point. So, so much of depression behavior isn't really necessarily physical circumstances. It's just our outlook, which, uh, you know, it does have a genetic, sometimes a chemical, certainly uh, behavioral and psychological perspective. But, you know, certain people in the world who have nothing, who live great lives, there are people in the world who have, you know, what the world would perceive as everything and are chronically depressed. So often it has nothing to do with our circumstances. Generally, circumstances create uh, conditional or provisional uh, depression or sadness, but generally that's not really what's driving the depression. So uh, you mentioned around 2013, uh, my mom, uh, and I don't think this was really what caused it, but I think this may have been a triggering factor, uh, had passed away. Um, and that was a very tough year. She uh, was suffering from uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in the last two years of her life really just wasn't there mentally or physically. Um, and that took a toll on the family. But I think a lot of the issues uh, sort of bubble to the surface. And I think 2013, 2014 are largely a blur. I just, um, you know, for people who suffer chronic depression or those who know, uh, it affects really all facets of your life. And it's um, the type of situation where it just gets progressively worse unless you are able to address it effectively. Uh, you either sleep too much or sleep too little. You either eat too much or eat too little. Um, you either um, you start maybe acting in an obsessive way or a compulsive way. Uh, you push people away. You don't have meaningful relationships. Nothing gives you joy anymore. Uh, things that you used to enjoy, hobbies fall by the wayside. Your health falls by the wayside. And it, um, it has sort of a, a snowball effect where, you know, one thing leads to another, you know, suddenly you push away one person, you push away another person. One day you wake up and there's no one really around you and you're wondering, well, I'm all alone. And of course, you were partially responsible for that. Um, and, I, and I use that word loosely, but, you know, your own behavior caused that outcome because you're in a manic or depressive state. Um, and so at some point, you know, I started seeking counseling. Uh, I think at one point I was seeing three different counselors, a psychiatrist and two psychologists. I was on all sorts of medications, which ended up providing and causing a, a litany of side effects over the long term. Uh, and for anybody who's been on psychotropic drugs at high doses, they have some serious physical side effects and you have to be closely watched under the supervision of a psychiatrist or a physician. Um, but that was the only thing that seemed to be helping. Ultimately, and I'm going to preface this by saying that each of our stories uh, who are going through mental health is a very individual story. And what I went through and what you went through and what others went through is personal and what may work for me may not work for you. And certainly what I'm about to say isn't, you know, 
the God's truth for anybody else. But I basically hit bottom. I, and I don't remember when it was, but I was having so many side effects from the medications. I couldn't watch straight. I couldn't go up or downstairs. Uh, I physically just was incapacitated. Uh, I was having a hard time sleeping. I was waking up every morning in just panic and just wanting to just throw up sort of these dry heaving. And I think it was probably in the late 2014, I realized like I was probably, you know, and then obviously you have suicidal ideations, you really just want to end it all. Um, and you realize like if something doesn't change in the short term, and I mean, probably within the next 30 days at that point, then I was, I was done. Like I physically was going to have a heart attack or I was going to drop dead or I was going to take my own life. I was just really at the end of my rope. Um, and somehow I managed to pull myself out of that. And most people, uh, you know, do it through uh, intensive counseling or, or maybe in, in-house care. Uh, so my story is very unique in the sense that I just really uh, hit rock bottom and realized that if I didn't have a change of perspective, it just wasn't going to end well. Um, and a lot of depression is driven by fear and anxiety. And I had to just push that aside. And it's really odd where... Um, almost on a dime, I was able to start making changes. And I started realizing I was able to deal with people much better. And my circumstances hadn't changed. You know, I still had the same job, same family, but my perspective did. And I think however one gets themselves out of the situation, whether it's through uh, counseling or group sessions or medication or through the help of family or friends, or even just individually by sure will, whatever helps that given individual, uh, it largely sort of turns on changing your worldview. And so much of it is trying to figure out how do I see the world differently? Is it through medication? Is it through talk therapy? Is it just like, you know, is it whatever, whatever works for that individual Um, and different things work for different individuals. And sometimes it's a cocktail of different approaches or attempts or efforts. Um, You know, for some people it's having somebody take care of, you know, people ask me, well, what's a good idea for depression? Just as an aside, I said, well, you should probably get a pet. Uh, But suddenly you have a daughter or cat to take care of. And suddenly you're like, you have to, you're responsible and, you know, they're unconditionally loving you and they provide the support and they somehow intuitively know when there's something wrong with you. Obviously there's, you know, a lot of uh, pet support animals like dogs who help with uh, soldiers with PTSD and everything else. So, um, you know, something else that really kind of helped, like I just started seeing the humor in everything. Um, I made myself like watch funny movies watch funny shows and you know the definition of comedy is tragedy plus time and now i can kind of look back at my life and kind of laugh at it and kind of laugh through everything laugh i couldn't even walk straight and i found it kind of humorous at this point um and and if you're ever going to get to the point where you're trying to help somebody you have to obviously help yourself first and you actually have to come out the other end come out through the forest uh before you can kind of really help pull up others alongside of you. But once you're there, once you've actually made it through, uh, you have a story to tell. Uh, you have a survivor story in a sense, because you actually made it through. And a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, take their own lives in the midst of all this. Um, and certainly not judgment against them. You know, I, I totally understand how one could feel so devoid of any sense of self that you do that. Uh, but once you're at the other side of it, and you've been able to, I guess, conquer for lots of better words. There's, there's two parts of it. One, there's always a sense like I can't fall back into it. You know, I just cannot slide back in there because I've been there and I can't do that again. Like I know how bad it is. Um, and so there's this constant struggle. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but there's constant recognition that I'm not going back. And then two, once you're out, you can really kind of help people understand 
the process. Like I, I think anybody who hasn't undergone it or doesn't have a close family member or close friend who hasn't undergone it, they really don't understand it. They think it's just kind of, well, you know, why are you feeling this way? And, you know, we all get depressed and we're all sad or upset or whatever else it might be. And it's really more complicated than that. And, you know, and obviously depression is just one area sort of on the mental health spectrum. There's anxiety, there's mad depressives or schizophrenia, whatever else it might be, but it is a serious disease. And I think people have to acknowledge that for what it is. And sometimes it's psychological, sometimes it's uh, organic, sometimes it is mental, uh, but, I think there has to be a better understanding and appreciation of how serious it is and how it negatively affects us. And, and again, you know, I'm very blessed that I think around 2015, I really started seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and then things kind of took off. And I felt like I'd spent and lost a lot of time uh, sort of in my entire life was sort of dominated by fear, but then it really kind of blew open in those last two years. And I felt like I had to make up for time. I turned 50 this year, uh, sort of like, I guess a mile marker year for me. And, um, so I want to say between 2015, 2020, I started writing a lot. You know, since then I've written, I think, 20 some books or so. A few of them haven't been published yet. So I think it was 15 or 16 out, but there's still a number of books in the works. Uh, I've sp spoken extensively. I've tried to help people wherever I can because um, suddenly once you can free yourself of the, of the reins of the depression, uh, you can really achieve so much. And I think if for, for those of you who are listening, who are finding yourselves that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And once you get past that, you'd be surprised how much you can accomplish. Let me ask you during that time period, uh, it sounds like it's about 2015. Um, how'd you fathom trying to recover from such a trauma in your life? Was it, did you know that you were at the end of your rope that, that you just couldn't go any further down, going down the path you were going? What, what kind of sparked that change that you wanted to see? You know, physically, I couldn't even walk. I was on so many medications that I literally could not walk up or downstairs. And, you know, I'm, at the time, I must have been in my mid-40s. I was in good health. Um, you know, I'd worked out most of my life. And I was basically disabled. And, you know, and, and you have that moment of recognition, that epiphany where like, how did I get here? You know, what am I doing in this moment at the top of these stairs? And I'm looking for uh, an escalator, an elevator, because if I go down these stairs, there's a good chance I'm going to tumble down because that's how lack of coordinated I am due to whatever medications or depression I'm on. Um, and that's how it happened for me. Now, my story again is very unique. I mean, my story, and not to give myself any sort of credit, it just, it was like this moment where like I had enough, like I just like seeing myself in that condition, I had to like pull myself out of it. And, and having tried everything else, nothing else was working. I realized I had to like, just do things differently. I just had to think about things differently. Um, and so that's kind of, that was a turning point. And I can kind of go back and look back and you know that, that point is a very creative time for me. I started writing a lot. Uh, I written a book in 2000, seven, I want to say for young lawyers. Uh, and then I did a bunch of articles and I stopped, I stopped for several years. And then 2016, I wrote my second book and now it's 2021 and I'm, you know, my 22nd, 23rd book. And again, I'm not saying that to impress anybody or to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that once you get it past you, um, 
you you have this ability to do so much. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate the folks who suffer from mental health issues generally have are very gifted in certain areas. Um, you know, if you think of some of our great artists and writers and and very talented people, a lot of them suffered with from mental health. A lot of actors and actresses and uh, musicians. A lot of them ended up taking their lives. Uh, so there is it's a certain irony, I suppose, that a lot of people who struggle with serious mental health have extraordinary gifts. And if they can just figure out how to deal with and get past it, they have an incredible gift to give the world. Well, that sounds incredible. Let me frame our discussion and then we can drill down into specifics. Um, While growing up, did you ever think that you'd be such an influencer in all of these areas that you're currently immersed in? You're you're a lawyer and, and you mentor lawyers and you have something to say from the mental health perspective. Did you ever fathom that you would be such an influencer in this, these areas? No, I really didn't. Um, you know, I kind of just went through the emotions for most of my life. Uh, I, early on, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but honestly, looking back, I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know if it's something I watched on television or just this general sense. I came from a working class family. I was only the second person to college in my family, in my extended family. And it was just sort of a ticket out of the inner city, basically. You know, we grew up in Chicago. We lived in some tenements and then ultimately moved down here to Miami um, and lived in an apartment for most of my life. Um, and so it was basically a ticket out. It was sort of, you know, it's, you know, maybe if you asked two or three generations ago, why do you want to become X? They typically say, well, I want to provide for my family. Uh, you know, it's kind of the mentality maybe our parents had or maybe someone a little bit older than me may have had. Um, and that's kind of was my approach to it. Um, and when you and when that's your approach, when you're just doing something to pay the bills, uh, you're not exactly sure why you're doing it. Uh, it becomes difficult to do it and enjoy it. And it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that I actually do enjoy the profession and the career, and that in the process, I can actually help others enjoy it as well. Great. So, what what drives you to such a high level of excellence in all these areas that you take on? You know, it's uh, going back to the mental health issue, in addition to uh, dealing with depression, anxiety, I have a strong compunction toward obsessive compulsive behavior. And it's funny because obsessive compulsive behavior is generally seen as negative. You know, you always think about people obsessively washing their hands or checking the doors or checking the, the locks of their house or making sure the stove is off and going back to the kitchen four or five times. But I think within the confounds of the word obsessive compulsive behavior, there's a word of obsession. And I think to achieve any great thing, you have to be obsessed about it. I mean, the great people at the industries get up thinking about it. They go to sleep thinking about it and they dream about it. And so if you're going to ask me why I do what I do, um, on the one hand, depression kind of brought me down, but on the other hand, my mental health issue, my obsession, obsessive compulsive behavior drives me to treat every marathon like a sprint. Like the gun goes off and most people are taking their time and I am out the gate and I'm never looking back. Um, and so um, it's just my nature. And again, for those who are going through this, you're going to find that what brought you down is the same energy that can push you forward. Okay. Um, Tell me about your style. Is there a central message that you try and get across, whether it's in helping others in that mental health area or from a legal perspective? 
what's the message you're trying to communicate? I think the primary message I try to give is that each of us has a purpose and that purpose is where our talents and our passions and our dreams intersect. If you're like create a Venn diagram and put a circle for dreams, one for passions, one for talents, the, the, the intersection point is where we're supposed to be, our purpose, our destiny, our fate, if you will. And so I try to help people through my books and my speaking and my writing uh, to help them figure out what they're supposed to do with their lives. I actually believe that each of us have a greater destiny. I mean, it may be someone like you who are trying to help other people through their weaknesses so they can, uh, you know, make the most of their strengths. But I think, you know, each of us has, has a destiny. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I typically speak to lawyers and lawyers and I help them make the most of what they can in the profession. But I like to think that I also reach to other people as well and help folks, you know, decide one, you know, what am I supposed to do with this life? And two, how do I get there? Great. What, what do you think the most challenging aspect of your experiences has been so far? Well, I mean, obviously getting through the depression was, was very challenging. And then once you're out of it, it's trying to help people who are still in it or helping young lawyers who feel like everything is the end of the world. It's, you, you now have a certain perspective, but at the same time, you can't forget what that was like. And I hate revisiting it, by the way. I hate going back and thinking what that was like because it was a terrible time. But you kind of have to put, like, you kind of have to turn the lights off or kind of take a step back into the past so you can better relate and associate and communicate with people who need your help. And so it's kind of like, you know, wrestling with your demons. Suddenly you have to kind of wrestle with your demons all over again each time that happens. But so that's probably the hardest part, but it's a very important and crucial part. And conversely, looking back, is there one moment where you felt the most gratification for what you've done? And, and why do you say that? No, I think that what I enjoy the most is when I'll get a note, you know, from an attorney or a lawyer or a law student, or it could be somebody who's in sales or anybody, really a professional, uh, I'll get a message through LinkedIn or to my personal email, somehow they find my email online and they'll say, oh, you know, I read something you said, or I heard a presentation you gave on X, whatever it might be. And that really helped me deal with whatever problem I was dealing with. And you helped me uh, address it. You know, it could, it could be mental health. It could be uh, dealing with the profession. It could be career advice. It could be how to land a job, whatever it might be. Uh, the stressors of being a darn lawyer, imposter syndrome. Um, and that really is very motivating uh, because at the end of the day, you know, it's not what we can, what we have, or it's, it's like what we leave behind and who we impact. And so that's probably the best part of what I do. And I'm sure probably what you do as well. That's great. So, you know, being a lawyer, that's a tough job. Have you ever got down on yourself and feel that the effort at this level was just too challenging for you and you, you felt overwhelmed? I think earlier in my career, I did. Certainly during that time when I was suffering from depression, I think a lot of young lawyers and even mid-tier lawyers go through this period of imposter syndrome because there's so much to learn. And being a lawyer is a very unusual profession in the sense that it's, it, I do litigation and it's confrontational, it's adversarial, and each person is trying to outsmart and outmaneuver the other person. And there are a lot of lawyers who won't think twice about taking advantage of younger lawyers and their inexperience. And so it's it's a very odd job. You know, if you're an accountant, you're crunching numbers, if you're a doctor, you're helping uh, people get better. But if you're a lawyer, uh, 
they're, they're, you're, in a way, you're kind of taking advantage of the other side and they're trying to take advantage of you. It's really unusual. Um, and, and so it, it's, it can be very stressful because uh, they're trying to exploit your weaknesses. They're trying to exploit when you drop the ball and in certain respects, you're trying to do the same to them. Um, and so it takes a certain type of person and it takes a certain type of uh, mentality to get through this. You litigators, I, I used to, when I worked at Fox, I would negotiate 100-page distribution agreements with, like, big uh, video content providers, DirecTV, Comcast, etc. And they all had litigators in the room when we were negotiating this these contracts. And they all pull all this stuff, all these tricks and even get personal and, and just, you know, at some point I had to say, you know what, let me know when you're finished so we can continue <laughs> negotiate the contract. But it was fun. It was fun. So do you ever, you ever bring your work home with you and, and it affects your feelings and emotions and how did you deal with that? Did you ask for help or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to leave work at home. It's hard to leave a contemporary opposing counsel at home. It's hard to leave a bad ruling at home or an upset client at home. But you kind of have to, you know, if, if it's already a very time-consuming job and a lot of us in our various professions spend well beyond our 40 hours, spend 50, 60 hours plus, and then to bring that home to the family on top of that really isn't fair to yourself and your own mental health and certainly not for your family. You know, uh, you know, lawyers have a very high, high rate of depression and suicide, but they also have a very high rate of divorce because they can't separate the work from the family. They, you know, they go home, they interrogate their spouse and their kids. They are upset and they take it out of their family or they're emotionally distant or unavailable. And, you know, relationships can only last that long under those circumstances. You know, just, you can have seasons like that, but you can't have a lifetime of that. And so, um, I think lawyers as a profession have to learn better to separate work from family and home. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's let's take a look at your nuclear family while you were growing up. Oh, so you grew up in Chicago. And how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love? Did he discuss his feelings and emotions? Did he ever talk to you about what it was to be a man? Well, my dad was a, a blue collar worker. He was a meat packer and then later a butcher. Um, we grew up in Chicago. I mean, he basically worked in the freezer the entire day, worked 80 hour weeks and got home and was pretty exhausted. And uh, we spent some time when we could, you know, we'd go to the park or ride bikes or whatever else. But um, I mean, he lived a very tough life. He's still alive. He's 86 years old now. Uh, actually just got his COVID vaccine this morning, his first shot, but uh, here, wherever, down here in Miami. Uh, but it was not a pleasant life. It was not an easy life. And he didn't really have a whole lot of patience or time. Uh, and so I kind of stayed out of his way and I guess he kind of stayed out of mine. And it's just, I, I, you learn work ethic that way. You learn how important it is to work. Uh, but obviously there's more to life than that. And, uh, and there are more lessons to learn than just trying to bring home a paycheck. So did it ever occur to you that yesterday, and today's masculinity norms, you know, the good old boy network and masculinity contests and an egotistical man that's very machismo, uh, 
Do you ever think that has prevented you from asking for help sooner for fear of being labeled uh, not a real man? Oh, sure. I think myself, especially attorneys, you know, high powered executives, uh, depression is something you just deal with. You know, you just, you know, people shouldn't be depressed. If you are, just get over it. And I think that mentality still holds true, sadly, uh, for a lot of people. I think mental health appreciation and understanding has grown a lot over the last decade or so. We've had a lot of significant actors and musicians and professionals take their own lives. And, and unfortunately, uh, in, after they've passed, we've learned a little bit more about the disease and that sort of shed light on, on things. You know, certainly Robin Williams comes to mind, you know, here's like one of the funniest men ever and had and took his own life. Um, but I, I think as a gender, I think, Certainly in certain professions, you know, certainly blue-collar professions, certain white-collar professions, uh, it just doesn't lend itself to talking about or revealing that side of you or even seeking help. Even just seeking help, even if you do it in a confidential way, is somehow stigmatizing. You know, you know what, what will the client think? What will the partners think? What will the firm think? What will the company think? Um, and so you just kind of bottle it up, and you can only bottle it up for so long. Very true. Very true. Um I know in, in my life growing up, um, I was the victim of abuse from my parents, uh, physical, mental, emotional. And I found out that was the root of my severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And uh, But luckily I got help from qualified doctors and today I feel better than I've ever felt. Was there a did you ever go through any kind of abuse at home when you were growing up? No, I just think I came in from a family that had a lot of serious depression. You know, my my mom was always seriously depressed. Her sister really came from my mother's side. My dad's side doesn't really deal with these issues. My dad had, you know, he worked too hard and just was frustrated with work, but he never really suffered from any chronic depression and his side of his family never seemed to succumb to it. But my mom's side of the family was just, I mean, pretty much everybody in the family tree suffered from it. Uh, and everybody up and down the tree, you know, suffers from it. So, uh, and, and when you're young, you don't talk about it, you don't really understand it. Our family didn't really talk about depression, so you don't really know about that. And then later on, when you get older, uh, you start asking some questions. You start wondering why so-and-so was drinking too much or why so-and-so was never at parties or why so-and-so took their lives. And you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is this is a serious problem. This wasn't just a one-off. This was, you know, this was a whole family thing. And, and either just mentally, just the way the family was put together, we created this hive of where we... Uh, promulgated depression or more likely genetically, we had this predisposition, predisposition toward it. Something that I mentioned in my book is about unchecked depression. And if it's not realized and discovered and dealt with, it can manifest into risky behavior, drug addiction, pill addiction, alcoholism, stealing, fighting, violence. Did you ever display any risky behavior as a child growing up? I didn't know, though. I did notice that a lot of friends and family who went under, uh, through depression, you know, uh, drank a lot, gambled, um, engaged in other activity. You know, when you're, when you're not feeling well, you try to find an escape. And, you know, some end up doing drugs or 
engage in other addictive behavior because you're trying to find a release. You're trying to find some sort of escape hatch from that be, uh, feelings and behavior. And, you know, ultimately always proves to be very temporal, but uh, personally, I didn't have to fortunately go undergo that. Great. Well, now you have two boys. How do you think you'd characterize yourself as a father? You know, I think I've kind of grown into those shoes. I think you know, at, when they were younger, I probably wasn't there for them as much as I could and probably didn't relate to them. And now I'm kind of going through this period of renaissance. You know, they're older now, but I'm actually kind of engaging them in the last few years really for the first time. Um, for those who follow me on LinkedIn, I try to post every day. And even though neither of my sons are lawyers and most of my posts are directed to lawyers or other legal professionals, uh, in many ways are directed to them. So they follow me and they read my posts and they read my books. And I'm, I'm trying in a certain way, and I know it's unusual, to kind of share with them my life advice. Um, and not only do they get it from me, but there's always this sort of echo chamber that's created by people commenting and, and sharing and so forth. So not only do they hear what I have to say, but what other people think about what I have to say. And so I feel kind of like in a certain way, social media is giving me sort of a backdoor opportunity to really foster a relationship that I kind of ignored for many years. So let me ask you, do, do you spend time with them or have you spent time with them talking about masculinity and how it shows up in life? No, I have. I have had those conversations in terms of how society defines it, how we define it for ourselves, how it's a very individualistic thing and, you know, traditional norms and ideas of what is masculine really aren't all that applicable. I mean, uh, you know, traditional masculinity results in bar fights and bar brawls and it ends up in yelling and screaming and engaging in other types of behavior to assert your dominance, which isn't particularly helpful for long-term relationships. Um, you know, the sort of the tender side, the sympathetic side, the emotional quotient side are really important aspects for any long-term relationship, whether it's with your spouse, your kids, or with people you work with or friends or family. And, you know, traditional masculinity doesn't really teach or lend itself to that. Well, on the flip side, there's healthy masculinity. That oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm talking about sort of tr traditional uh, yeah. long-term roles. I think, you know, obviously, um, you know, more healthy views of masculinity is somebody who wants to provide and care and foster family relationships, who wants to not only help achieve one's own goals, but to help others achieve their goals as well uh, in a safe and uh, fruitful and encouraging environment. Yeah, my research on the book, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to say about masculinity in the workplace. And you know, men aren't always inclusive in the workplace, especially when it comes to women who want to make a major contribution into the team's effort, but you know, they kind of get pigeonholed and if they're up against the guy who's the leader and is practicing toxic masculinity, it, it, productivity lessens. There's a lot of unhappiness. The women might leave the organization. They might complain to HR. Um, so it, it's, it's an important issue, I believe, to speak to. People need to hear it, even though they often don't want to talk about it talk about depression, 
you know, it's often swept under the rug, but I think it's something that uh, it needs to be talked about so people understand uh, what their behavior is and the consequences of their behavior and, and how they can improve and help everybody uh, in, in their relationships at home and in the workplace. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So overall, all your experiences, what have you learned? What's the biggest thing you've learned from all your experiences in life? I think no matter where you find yourself and no matter what you're suffering from or whatever issue you're facing, there's hope and there are resources and there's help and you just have to keep looking for it. Um, you know, suicide isn't the answer. Uh, just giving up is not the answer. No matter where you find yourself and no matter how far gone you've gone down the rabbit hole, uh, there is an out, there is a light, there is, you know, the forest does end and you kind of break free from it after a while. Um, and sometimes it takes years, sometimes it takes decades, um, but you can't keep fighting. Like no matter how um, restless you are, no matter how hopeless you feel, uh, there is another day, there's another dawning and you can't get through it. Very good. So personally, how, how do you describe healthy masculinity? I think it's using the resources we have and the talents we have uh, to help not only ourselves, but our institutions, our organizations, and our family achieve their goals. You know, we're trying to uh, be leaders, uh, and I guess it works with females as well, but certainly from a masculinity perspective, we want to lead, we want to take a position of authority, but we do it in a way where we're doing it in a form of servant leadership, where we're actually uh, serving others in the process of leading them and helping them achieve their goals and the goals of the greater good. Excellent. Well, as our listeners can see, Frank's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to his community, a true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you on the podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with? Well, thanks so much, Tim. Uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity and no matter where you find yourselves, there's always hope. And if you have a family or, or friends that suddenly they feel or they are acting a bit withdrawn or unusual or acting different, certainly they're saying or doing things that are unusual. Uh, don't ignore it because uh, you might be the person that saves another person's life. Very true. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can learn from you so that I can help others even more. Likewise. Thanks again, Frank. Thank you, Tim. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. And feel free to contact me for speaking engagements through my website, TimCrass.com. And don't forget... Have fun, everybody.